Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Whole Brother Mission podcast. We are here with a new episode, and by we, I mean me, myself, and I. There is no guest this week. I'll be doing the episode alone, but I do have some things I'd like to share with you. It'll be a little shorter than normal, but I do think this is a needed discussion as I just share some of my experiences. So as you're listening, uh, you're probably thinking about the biggest news story, I believe, in terms of social media. I'm not sure how much the national media is covering it. Uh, I've seen some things, but Ahmad Arbery is uh, an African-American male that was shot in Georgia. I believe the shooting happened in February of 2020, but the video footage has been released recently and it's caused an uproar and a lot of outrage as it relates to uh, Americans viewing the footage and even people beyond America viewing the footage and seeing what happened. So for those that don't know, there's this video, uh, there's clearly a guy in a vehicle recording, the guy who's driving the vehicle is recording out of his windshield. And he's recording, and then you see an African-American male, which is Ahmad, running. I'll say now, from my perception, it looked like he was clearly jogging. It didn't seem like he was running from anybody from when I first saw it. I just saw him running. So from there, he's running, and then he comes up on another vehicle, and there's two gentlemen, uh, one closer to the vehicle and one away from the vehicle. And they get into a scuffle, they go off camera for a while, and then basically he gets shot and killed. The, there was multiple shots fired. So I'm not completely sure of all the details surrounding what, what actually happened. Of course, everyone has different reports. There's saying this, they're saying that, and so on and so forth. But a black man, another unarmed black man has been killed. And the sad part about this to me is that this has become so normal for me that it's really hard to feel anymore. I've kind of just become numb to it. And I've accepted the reality that we live in a country where people have an issue with Black men specifically and in many ways are empowered to just kill us. There are laws in place that allow this to happen time and time again from state to state. And unfortunately, I feel like I haven't seen much change in regards to the criminal justice system that I think allows this, uh, allowing these men to get off. But even beyond the criminal justice system, just general Americans who look at this and some already assume the guilt of the person who was murdered. It's interesting how when we see someone die, typically the response is a lot of uh, grief or a lot of emotional support for the family of the person that was killed. But for some reason, when it comes to black men being killed in America, that same empathy isn't extended. And a lot of times there's an assumption of guilt, even without evidence. What we do know is the white men in the video shot him. What we can't see from the video is anything beyond that. Yet somehow the narrative for some has become that he was obviously up to no good. Now, I'm not going to get into the conflicting reports about what happened surrounding this. We'll let that play out. But I wanted to take some time to address my experience with the issue of race and racism. Um, it's an issue that's near and dear to my heart, not just uh, from an emotional perspective, because this stuff irritates me, 
but also because I spent some time working as a diversity consultant for universities and colleges, specifically white schools. And I wanted to just take some time to do two things with today's podcast episode. I wanted to share with you my journey in terms of my dealings with race and racism and what I've observed. Maybe you've observed some of these things too. And then from there, I'll make the connection to this story uh, as it relates to Ahmad. So just connecting these ideas because this shooting has reignited the already present issue of race and racism in America. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is I want to take the time also toward the end of our broadcast today to tell you in about an event that the Whole Brother Mission is uh, hosting next week. And this is releasing uh, today on the 7th, May 7th, but we're having an event on May 13th. You can tune in, uh, follow the scrolling bar at the bottom, of course, and I'll discuss more about that later. But before getting to that event, like I said, I want to take some time to address my experience with issues of race and racism. Now, I'll start with this. I'm originally from Southeast Washington, D.C. I'm from the hood. Uh, and I know some would jokingly say, well, you don't sound like it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm I'm from Southeast Washington, D.C., a place called Chocolate City, uh, The Circle. Uh, and for those that are a uh, simple city as well. So some that are from the area will know that it's not the nicest area. Uh, it's not, uh, there's no whole foods. <laughs> uh, as far as that specific part of DC that I was born in, not a whole bunch of coffee shops and so on and so forth. So, I mean, to be honest with you, I grew up in a environment where, uh, here's some more context for you. I was born in a, I believe, a two-bedroom apartment. And in that two-bedroom apartment was, I was born in a, a hospital, but when I was born, we went back to an apartment. And that apartment had, uh, you know, my mom, her siblings, my grandmother, and then each of my aunts and uncles, uh, family members as uh, children as well. So we came from humble beginnings. We didn't have a lot. Uh, a lot of us packed into a small area. And it was due to gun violence and my grandmother's window crashing open that eventually we had to move her out of there. Now, one by one, each of the family members, uh, my aunts, uncles, and my mom all moved out and got their own uh, places. But that's where it started. And after that, there was a shooting and my grandmother's window and that I believe two bedroom apartment was busted. And then, you know, we moved her out of there uh, for her safety. And I've come up around a lot of uh, what some would say urban environments and so on and so forth. So I'm very much so familiar with that. I hate the fact that I have to give a caveat of that because a lot of times people assume that if you're articulate, or educated or present yourself a certain way that you must be from a white neighborhood or a quote unquote nice neighborhood. But I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not from a, a, a nice neighborhood. And like I said, the neighborhood was called chocolate city. So I grew up mostly around black people. And by the time I had to go to college or I chose to go to college, uh, an opportunity was presented to go to a school in North Carolina. So I'm leaving Washington, D.C. and going to North Carolina for college. 
Now, the school that I went to for college, I'm going to put this out there right now so that as I get into this discussion, that uh, the perception isn't given that I'm at odds with the school or anything like that. I have a good relationship with several people that work there to include the president. And um, I'm still studying there. I'm actually doing my doctoral degree there right now. But there were quite a few experiences as a black man from Washington, D.C., then moving to North Carolina that I would say are interesting. Uh, and I'll unpack that a little more. So I moved from Washington, D.C. to North Carolina for college, did my master's degree, moved away, and I'm now working on the doctoral degree in counseling. But it was an interesting dynamic. I was exposed to a lot of new things as it relates to white people. And once again, I don't have any issues with white people generally. I have issues with white people that are racist. Uh, I have a lot of good friends that are white. So I'm not one of those people that one of those black people that hates white people because that does exist. I'm not one of those people, but I am for accountability. And a lot of times there are white counterparts, white brothers or sisters who are doing stuff that's just problematic and have views that I think create this racial racialized country that we live in. So no hard feelings, but I just feel like it's necessary to have the conversation. And I think sometimes people get offended or hurt when you address certain topics. I'd rather you be quiet about it. But I just once again, to make it clear that I'm not addressing this from a place of anger, I'm addressing it from a place of accountability, transparency, and open discussion. I think if someone's not racist and white, they could should easily be able to join a conversation about race. Of course, it takes some emotional maturity to not take everything personal. But I think we can have these kinds of discussions without it blowing up. So I'm done with my caveats and all my uh, safe language. I'm just going to get to the point now. So I went to this white college and I had several experiences with racism and racial ignorance. And it opened me up to a new world because coming because coming from Washington, D.C., I'm sure that there are racist white people in D.C., but I'll just say I was younger, you know, from a kid on up to 18. And I never came across a racist white person. I never came across microaggressions. It's just always been cool. I've never had uh, overt issues with of overt racial issues with white people. I never had that issue in D.C. So that being my experience growing up from a child to adult, I was very limited in my understanding. I remember a long time ago before leaving D.C., an elder, I think it was a teacher in the public school system that told me that racism isn't over. It's just more covert. It's not over yet. And I didn't understand it at the time. He was saying, you know, they, they have a way of hiding it now and they're more passive about it, but it's still here. And at the time, I didn't understand it. But after moving to, to North Carolina and going to this white college then it became so clear to me in a way that I don't think I would have understood had I not left D.C. Uh, because it, it was personal. So here's some of the things that happened. So once again, here's some context for you. This school that I ended up going to was a predominantly white school, white led as far as the administration. Most of the students are white. And it was a Christian school, too. So it had a religious uh, overarching theme as far, as far as everything they did. And just so you know, when I say religious, um, this has some overlap with politics as well. 
So they are what you would consider the school as far as uh, the organization that's uh, underwriting it and putting it at place. All of the leadership are conservative white evangelicals. And if you pay attention to politics, you'll understand that conservative white evangelicals are a big part of the voting bloc that put President Trump in office. And many have discussed the idea of President Trump being an immoral person. That's some people's point of view. And they have pointed out the fact that the conservative evangelical Christians are supposed to be biblical and moral people. So the critique after that election was that their values and morals that they say that they're about didn't seem to be consistent in how they shared their vote. But the pushback on that is that many uh, conservative evangelicals have a mindset that you can't support candidates that are pro-choice. They're against abortion. So the pushback is that you can't support a candidate that is pro-abortion. So they always have to go typically with the Republican Party because that's, quote unquote, God's way. That's the perspective that many of them have. Not everybody, but that's the overarching perspective. It, I'll say the climate there, if someone were pro, um, yeah, they're, they're, they, if, I, if I misspoke, forgive me, the conservative white evangelicals are pro-life. You can't be pro-choice. And the culture there was if someone was pro-choice, I think they would have been ostracized on that campus if that was the case. So this is just me giving context for you, not my personal opinions about most of it, but these are the things I observed. So in addition to that, that that is um, kind of an idea of how things work there. You got conservative white evangelicals. They are in many cases trained and they train their children to vote Republican. And that's they're they're against abortion. They are supposed to be about family values and so on and so forth. And in many ways, the direct contradiction or the direct opposite of what the Democratic Party typically is about in terms of being more progressive. Uh, They are seen as conservative and their opposers are seen as progressive liberals, so on and so forth. So that's the context for this. So I get there. And first thing is my roommate, of course, was white. And to sum it all up, he stayed for two semesters and ended up leaving, going to the Navy. But over the course of my time there, I was a very blunt and straightforward person. So I dealt with some things that I think were racist or racism from my roommate and some others. And I began to address those things directly. And one of the conversations I had with my roommate before he left was he was very honest with me. And he said that I was a pleasant surprise to him because he was a bit disappointed when he found out his roommate was black, but then he liked me specifically though. I was a breath of fresh air to him and I wasn't what he was, what he expected. And he explained to me that he had a negative view of black men Because back in his neighborhood before he moved to college, there was a black guy who had a white girlfriend and he used to beat her. So he had a negative view of black men, but I was a pleasant surprise. I wasn't like that. And then he went further to tell me that in his household, they use the N-word quite a bit. So he had to retrain himself to not say it around me because now he's living in quarters with a black person. 
So there was there was that. And then I remember one time I went to the grocery store with some of my floor mates. And as we were checking out at Target at our groceries, uh, I went with a few others, but I didn't shop. I didn't buy anything. So I'm standing at the end of the grocery line belt, letting them, you know, pack up their things. And one of the other floor mates uh, did a gesture of cracking a whip at me because I wasn't helping. And he said work. And he thought that was funny to gesture as if he was cracking a whip to get me to work and help him pack up his groceries. So those are some of the things that I experienced. Um, and to me, my my thought process as a result of all this is. I'll share some more with you because it might seem like a reach if I say this now, but where I'm going, I'll show you some more of it. But because these are just some examples of students, but there's also more developed, supposed to be more mature adults who st still exhibited this kind of ignorance and lack of awareness. But I have to say that having come from D.C. and then moving to the South and being in that environment, I have not even now uh, being close to 30. I've yet to meet a more culturally unaware group than conservative evangelical Christians. I've yet to white specifically conservative evangelical white people. I've yet to meet a group that seems to be so culturally unaware that they keep stepping into uh, offending and saying insensitive things. Um, all of us, there are several different racial groups in the United States of America, and I've dealt with quite a few of them. And I think for many of us, there seems to be this general understanding of what can be said and what shouldn't be said. Uh, I'm black and I wasn't around a whole lot of white people, but I knew how to behave there as to not offend people as if I was coming off as putting their race down or whatever the case may be. Now, I did offend some people when I began to call out the racism, but I wasn't a generally offensive person like someone cracking a whip at me, uh, a hypothetical whip at me. So it, it was just really interesting to see that they, the group, the some of the some, and once again, I don't, I'm not about blanket statements, but this is an overwhelming representation of people that I saw this with. I mean, I, I worked there for several years as well, and I'll get to that, and traveled all over. And this network of people that I identify as white evangelicals or as evangelicals, they ignore the white a lot of times. But they, um, I've, I've traveled all over the country dealing with people within this uh, belief system. And it seems to be the same thing quite a bit. Now, I'm not discounting the people who don't exhibit this ignorance and are more culturally aware, but it is really overwhelming from teenagers on up to men in their 70s, there is still this pervasive, overwhelming ignorance as it relates to what is offensive to other people, uh, other people's values, diversity. And also, I think there is an underlining white supremacy that they don't even know that they're aware of. They don't realize that they have come to a, a point of thinking where they think that their way is the right way and the normal way and that everyone else is kind of an alternative way rather than looking at their way of doing things or their way of viewing things as a way 
the perception seems to be that their way of thinking is the way. And then you have all these other races of people. And that's why I don't like the wording that we use today in uh, the news and in political media, where you say there is a people of color. Because that creates this dichotomy that there's white people and then there's everybody else, people of color. And it lumps all of us together when it makes absolutely no sense to lump African-Americans in with Hispanic people and Asian people and so on and so forth. That makes no sense, but it creates this dichotomy that there's white people, primary, and then there's everybody else, secondary and tertiary. And I do think that in many cases, they've adopted that mindset, too, in terms of how they live their lives and what they do. Especially when you add the moral component of them being Christian, there's this idea that we are the moral arbiters of culture and the way that we do things is right and uh, the way that other people do things is wrong. Now, obviously, moral belief systems and worldviews can differ. And anyone that has studied different world religions would understand that a lot of these religions can't be reconciled because of the differences in terms of deity that they're claiming. So I understand thinking that your way is the right way in terms of your religious beliefs. That's one thing. But what I've dealt with in terms of dealing with white evangelicals is not just saying that my religious view is right, but going a step further and making cultural norms and saying that their cultural norms are the right way as well. And that other forms of expression that are uh, not necessarily theological or related to deity, but even practical things uh, on a day-to-day basis, their way is the right way. And then others way isn't necessarily right. And the way that that plays out is the uh, praise of those that culturally assimilate. Now, as I said before, when I arrived at this school, I ruffled quite a bit of feathers. And I don't say, I wouldn't say it's because I'm offensive or rude person. I would say it's because I came from Washington, D.C., and I was a type of black person that was confident in myself and in my culture and in my norms. And I brought myself to the campus and my priority was to get my education and leave, not necessarily to make sure that white people were happy with me. Now, of course, I wanted to make friends and I did, but. I think that I ruffled feathers because there was a certain prototype that they preferred that many responded to much better. And that is what I mean when I say that there seems to be a prioritization of their cultural norms and uh, discounting of other cultural norms. I'll go even further. There were a few other black people that went to the school. Those black people came from culturally white settings. Now, I'm from Chocolate City, Southeast Washington, D.C., and was typically in majority black spaces growing up before I went to college. So I was always around black people. Most of the black people that do exist in those spaces are culturally white. So they may have gone to a white church, lived in a white neighborhood. They may have been adopted, a black person adopted by a white family. It's all these different connections to whiteness that then end up making them a black face. They're different racially, but then they're the same culturally. And they love black people like that. 
that view things the same way that they view them. They typically prefer black people that are conservative evangelical or conservative politically. They have a hard time with black people that identify as a liberal or a Democrat. And I would say that people who were uh, leaning more liberal politically definitely didn't feel as comfortable in that environment. In addition to the black people there being immersed in white culture, uh, I think there was even further a prioritization of this because I saw certain things that I knew were general norms across the board, but then it would be unique there. So here's an example of that. In most cases, we date within our race. Mostly in America, white people marry other white people, black people date and marry other black people, Hispanic people date and marry other Hispanic people. That happens more often than not. And then there are interracial relationships that happen here and there. But another interesting coincidence I noticed is a lot of the black men there dated white women exclusively. Never really had a black girlfriend in the past, never uh, and, and aren't married to black women. Now, there, are, there were some. I'm not discounting that. There were maybe two black men there <laughs> that had black wives. But all the others, white women. And I'm not saying that they, uh, well, I, I will say that I think that being in that culture, if you're not securing who you are, you'll end up getting, uh, I want I want to say brainwashed, but you'll get to this point where you begin to assimilate uh, to be accepted. And I do think if you really dig down, it can end up playing out and showing even in your dating preferences. If you get immersed in the culture or sucked into it, you end up thinking and doing things the way that they think is right. And I will say I observe some concerning things because some of the black men in that space only dated white women exclusively. And I heard things like, well, black girls just want this kind of guy. Uh, I, I dealt with a lot of offended black men who weren't, uh, who had unresolved issues. Like one, he, um, he played guitar in high school. And he says that a lot of the black girls in high school weren't really looking for a black guy that played guitar. They wanted a rapper or a more thug type. And he brushed it off. But I could tell that that rejection then turned into running to white women. And this school environment I was in, in many different ways beyond just that dating example, became a hub of for either black people that are immersed in white culture or black people that are offended in some way with black people or black institutions and are then running to a white space for safety. It's interesting how all that played out, but th that's just some of some of what I saw. Now let's go a couple steps further. When I introduced uh, when I introduced the issues that I was having with some of the uh, roommates and floor mates in terms of racial stuff to the student uh, life staff at the time, they were completely unprepared. They had no idea how to deal with it. In fact, the director at the time, when we first told him that I was confronted with some racial issues and cracking the whip and living with a roommate who used to say the N-word. Oh, and I forgot, one of the main things that pushed me over was this was around the time when George Zimmerman was going to trial for the shooting of Trayvon Martin. And I remember we were sitting in a Sheets gas station and across the TV, I think it was saying that George Zimmerman got off. 
and or something in reference to the trial of George Zimmerman. And my roommate said that Trayvon deserved it. So after that was when I uh, approached the student life staff about some of these issues. And the first thing the director of the student life department said was, Malik, make sure you don't use this as a crutch. No mending all the examples I gave him, but the first response was don't use this as a crutch. And it's just interesting that once again, the in a school setting where you're dealing with, yes, people adults, but they're still basically people's kids. You're supposed to be tending to the students that there there was such a, a defense. Once again, I think in that moment of whiteness, rather than dealing with it uh, from the from the middle I think there was a link because he was white. I think immediately it was like, well, let me defend white people in this moment. When in reality, what should have been dealt with was the issues that I was dealing with as a, as a student. So beyond that, uh, I began to speak up about some of these issues. And I actually hosted an event on campus about the issue of race. And I brought some white people, some black people together, prominent leaders in that area. And we had a very real discussion. Um, and it was the first of its kind at that scale. So that's just the kind of guy I am. I address those things directly. And because I was moving forward on those issues, the school, as far as the president and uh, leadership there, they were in favor of making some kinds of changes and making it better. They acknowledged, you know, we're not doing well in this area. So I ended up being hired uh, to work in the president's office to help mend some of these issues. But then after that, it came a new level of racism uh, so I, I gave you my examples of the racism as a student, but then the racism as an employee became even more emboldened. So, of course, uh, there were a lot of people around campus that all of a sudden got upset because I think, once again, because the culture is so white, the expectation is that everything is supposed to be for white people because historically that's what they prioritize. But when you start moving in a different direction, people got uncomfortable. So... I was working for the president and many, uh, of course, these things got back to me, but no one was bold enough to say it to me. But like a lot of them were upset because they felt like I was only hired because I'm black, but I wasn't qualified. And some uh, felt as if, though, the things that I was saying, they flipped it back on me, even though I was the diversity guy helping the school deal with their past racism and uh, inconsistencies across racial lines. When I began to challenge these things, I was called racist and no one ever called a meeting with me to discuss some of the some of the agendas we were pushing to remedy the past racism. Rather than doing that, having a discussion, hey, when you said this, what do you mean by that? Or I felt this way rather than having mature adult discussions. So many people rushed to have me fired. They didn't like something I said or something I posted on social media or something I said at an event on campus or something I said when speaking across the country for a different event so they would send emails to the president's office trying to get me fired like they wanted me out of there i've had messages sent to me personally and then this you know this was one school but this school was a part of a larger group of people uh specifically called the southern baptist convention which is conservative evangelical for the most part but it goes beyond that and nationally i began to see my name popping up on all these different uh, podcasts or websites and white men from Montana or wherever 
are like, this guy is a problem. And they're hurling all kinds of threats at me and saying terrible things. And luckily, once again, I'm the kind of guy that thought it was funny. Um, but I know not everybody's, I guess that's just the kind of stock that I come from, but I know a lot of people aren't built that way. So if someone else came into that experience, they could have been overwhelmed by the white people from around the country trying to get you fired. People at your school backbiting and spreading negative things about you all because they don't like that a black guy is leading and is unapologetically black and is not downing black women and is not uh exhibiting some self some uh some not exhibiting some level of internalized uh hatred because honestly i think th the preference was for you to look black but not be black and that's to be black racially but to not be black culturally they preferred what some would call oreos people that are black on the outside but white on the inside and by white on the inside we mean white culturally so that's how I pissed a lot of people off, not just at the school, but uh, across. And it made me realize that when I tried to rectify some of these issues, that you, I was dealing with a group of people who in some way have been trained or um, coddled so long that it makes me wonder if any progress can be made in this area. It seems so deep rooted, the ignorance and the willful, uh, the willful ignorance, the stiff neckedness or the uh, inability or the lack of desire to learn or be educated is really astounding. And it's really hard to make progress as it relates to these racial issues, because it seems as if, though, they're so culturally unaware, there's not an openness to learning or realizing that the country the united states of america isn't just for white people and white people uh aren't necessarily don't need to be in power all the time you know i know something that really pissed a lot of people off was when i would talk about white privilege and the response will be well i worked for everything i had white privilege doesn't exist and systemic injustice doesn't exist and they would also they don't like when you criticize the police. They act like the police are perfect and they're very pro-gun. And whenever these videos of shootings of black men come out, a lot of times the response is assuming that the black man was criminal. They always assume the best in the officer and assume the worst in the, the black person, unarmed black man being killed. Once again, not everybody, but these are common themes that I ran into when existing within this culture. So you know, time has passed. I've left the school, worked at another white evangelical school and dealt with the same stuff. And it was just always interesting to me that they're very vocal on certain issues like abortion. Uh, they're against abortion and they want to outlaw it and so on and so forth. And that's fine. But they get quiet as it relates to issues when black men are killed and so on and so forth and they say that they're pro-life but that pro-life isn't consistent it's more so just being anti-abortion because if you're pro-life you have to be pro-life across the board if you don't want people to die if you don't want babies to be killed then you should also not want black men gunned down in the street but then once again to me it seems like there's this uh 
way in which they're being held hostage to a, uh, the Republican Party because it's like, well, we'll stick on you guys' side and vote Republican because uh, we're pro-life. And because you're pro-life, that's the one issue. And anything else that you do, we'll make excuses for it, even if it contradicts uh, some of our morals and our belief system. And it's just been a very interesting journey to see how that has developed over time. So, of course, while being there, uh, I connected with a lot of people on social media and I'm still friends with them now. So now when things happen, I have a very interesting social media timeline where I have all the black people that I know giving their commentary. But then I have all these conservative white evangelical people giving their commentary. So I'm, uh, it's amazing how we process through information differently. I tend to see extremes on my timeline all the time on the same story. Sorry, I might have went out there, but I have black people on my timeline saying that the uh, coronavirus is not where it needs to be as far as on the decline for us to go back out. So don't go back out, even though some states are open back up. Be safe because the coronavirus uh, is disproportionately affecting black people. So that's what I'm hearing from black people on my timeline. But then the conservative white evangelicals on my timeline, some, not all, they're pushing this idea of this is all a scam um, and Dr. Fauci is a bad guy and we need to open the economy back up and don't let them fool you. This isn't as serious as it, they're making it out to be. It's not that dangerous. Go live your life. Go play on the beach. Go jog. We got to open this economy back up. And this is all it's all BS. So it's just interesting how they pro we process to information very differently across the lines of color. So that was my experience with then once again, I'm not necessarily trying to push you one way or the other. I'm just saying this is how it happened for me. I was in a majority black context and then I spent a lot of my life in a majority white context. And these are the things that I've seen. So now when it comes to Ahmad. Uh, who was shot down, something I see a lot of these conservative white evangelicals saying is, well, one, most of them aren't commenting on it. They're still talking about fire Fauci. <laughs> um, but for the ones that do address Ahmad, what they're saying is, this is so sad, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I'm very much so familiar with the belief system. Now, we know the whole brother mission isn't a religious organization, but I'm very much so familiar with their belief system. And it is one that says that after you die, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you go to heaven uh, to be with him eternally. So this life here on earth isn't uh, your only life. You don't live once. You live twice if you are in Christ or a believer in Christ. So you die, your physical body dies on this side, but then you continue to live in the presence of God eternally forever. Eternal bliss, eternal, uh, e uh, eternity in paradise with God. That's the belief system. So when they say, Lord, Jesus, come quickly, they're speaking to the fact that, you know, one, you could die and live with Jesus forever, or two, Jesus could come again, the second uh, coming of Christ. And, you know, then li this life will be over. And 
while I understand that, and I'm not discounting that belief system at all, I am going to push back on how it's being applied. To me, it feels like a cop-out. When we say, I'm so sad at the injustice of Ahmad being shot down like that, Lord Jesus, come quickly, that's skipping over this life and what can be done now. Yes, there is another life after this one. That is the belief system of Christians. But there are those of us who are living right now and want justice now and want something to be done now. And I want to make a point to say that there's nothing wrong with having that belief system and saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But black people who are being shut down are saying what needs to be done, what can be done right now to adjust these issues, to, uh, to, to deal with the racism and to deal with uh, the systems that allow this, the laws that allow this. And I don't want to seem like I'm nitpicking and saying, you know, why don't you let those people just call on their belief system and call on God? They believe in them. I'm not denying the ability to do that, but I'm saying that I think that mindset unintentionally could be propagating and maintaining the racist status quo that we live in. When you absolve yourself of what can be done to resolve these issues now and jump to Lord Jesus come quickly, well, you're skipping over the issue at the present. The Bible also says we don't know when he's going to return. So let's labor right now and do what we can with love in mind for those that have that belief system. So let's not skip to Lord Jesus come quickly. Let's skip to Lord, what can I do right now to resolve the injustice that I'm seeing? What would you have me to do if that's your belief system? So I wanted to push back on that because I, I saw that I see that quite a bit. I think people don't know what to say. So they that's the go to for many evangelical Christians. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. But that's not the response to abortion, though. It's not all these abortions are happening. Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's no, I believe that's an injustice. So I'm now doing this. So I would encourage you who's listening or a black person pass this on to your white friend or white person who's listening, who may have that belief system. Don't skip to Lord Jesus come quickly. Skip to Lord, what can I do right now? And I'll go even further and talk about privilege. I think leveraging privilege to raise your voice about these issues is a big part of it. It's one thing if black people are complaining about black people being shot. But what if white people in droves showed up like they did in Charlottesville? Just white people saying, no, this is America. Shooting black men, unarmed black men down like that, it shouldn't be acceptable at all. So there are things that can be done. And I also realize that as it relates to this political uh, relationship between conservative evangelicals and the Republican Party, they're in cahoots and they make demands and then they get them. And then they vote for the person that is going to give them what they want. There are lots of seats of power that lobby and wager for what we want. So what if those same people then took these issues of people being killed because we're pro-life, right? Meaning that the people within that within that concentric. What if you took that same fervor and energy that you did for pushing things that matter to you 
what if you then leverage that power that you have and privilege that you have because black people do not have the same access that most other racial groups don't you know when we look at all the presidents all 44 of them were white men to include barack obama it always perplexes me how you can look at the history of our country in terms of leadership and then uh be confounded or confused when we talk about white privilege so i wanted to just push back on that idea and say that there is there are things that can be done now and for those that are looking to be allies and what the foolishness that black people deal with in this country leveraging your privilege to raise these issues that are concerning us to a different level i think is one uh rather than rallying um to uh to chant jews will not replace us i think it'd be a lot more helpful to rally uh, and or the, rather than protesting uh the coronavirus and get social uh gathering when we should be social distancing those same responses i think could generate a lot of ethnic conciliation because although i'm critical of uh a lot of white christians in this video i'm critical of anything that's wrong so it's not exclusive to white people i'm critical of black people too i think we can live in a more equitable society and i think it has to start with uh, a lot more responsibility on the white side of things and the last thing i would add is also intra-racial confrontation white people have to confront other white people about this stuff it can't just be black people because to be honest with you the system of racism and injustice within this country was built very much so intentionally and nothing signed uh remedied that in one moment we're still dealing with the effects of jim crow and past racism and slavery today not just the victims but i also think that the beneficiaries of such racism have had their minds altered and affected in a certain way too and they need help so we're not in a post-racial country and i think that the progress that is being could be made is being held up because i don't think white people that give are aware of tangible steps that they can do to help remedy these issues but also there is a lack of willingness to undo this because racist systems do benefit do benefit a specific race too and our racist systems keep white people in power and although we are the quote-unquote american melting pot i do think we should move in a direction of more uh equality um not this overwhelming representation of white people in every sector of society uh i remember star jones i believe said years ago that for her to be successful the way she has been she had to learn how white people work as you rise in your career in different settings you're going to end up hitting the glass ceiling of white people somewhere with money and with power and you have to learn how to speak their language white people don't have to do that same thing and that in and of itself they don't have to do that same thing to be successful and that in and of itself is white privilege so that's what i want to address today just connecting all those ideas that's what i've seen that's what i've experienced and that's what i see playing out here now in closing i do want to pass this information on to you once again or it was scrolling before but now i'm going to say it a lot of these issues that we address that i addressed today i think overlap with politics quite a bit and i don't want to sway you in any particular way i'm not endorsing any particular candidate 
and I'm not uh, speaking against any particular candidate, but I do think it's necessary for us to have a discussion. There is an upcoming election, and I do think that we need to look back at how Black men, Whole Brother Mission is a male-focused organization. So having a conversation about the Black male vote and things of that nature, that'll be happening on May 13th at 7 p.m. on Facebook Live, the Whole Brother Mission Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Whole Brother Mission. And we're going to, I'll be moderating, but we're going to have Bakari Sellers of CNN and Justin Gibney, who's the president of the AND campaign. You can look them up. Uh, myself and those two will be uh, having a discussion about the black man's vote and just thinking through some political things in a robust way. And honestly, I think tying this in with Ahmad, because we don't recognize a lot of times that local voting is very much so important too. And laws that are happening at a county and state level end up affecting how cases like Ahmad are handled. So how black men are being victimized can be remedied in how we vote or what we consider. So we want to have that discussion. So that's it for today. It was supposed to be shorter, but it looks like uh, we ended up going the same amount of time that I would have went if I had a guess. I'm sorry about that, but I had to get a few things off my chest. Hopefully it was helpful and it'll spark some dialogue. This is Malik Blade signing off. This has been the Whole Brother Mission podcast.